This is Gil Manser welcoming you to KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, where tonight's guest is the international award-winning novelist and poet and now children's author, Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, sharing her newest book, Oleander Girl. Born in Kolkata, India, Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni received her B.A. from the University of Calcutta, her M.A. from Wayne State, and her doctorate from UC Berkeley. She taught creative writing at Foothill College and Diablo Valley College and is now the Betty and Jean McDavid Professor of Writing at the University of Houston Creative Writing Program. Known worldwide as an enticing storyteller with an exquisite moral compass, Cheetra's books include Leaving Yuba City, Arranged Marriage, The Mistress of Spices, Sister of My Heart, Palace of Illusions, Conk Bearer, and her newest novel, Oleander Girl. Her notable awards include the American Book Award, the Ginsburg Poetry Prize, Pushcart Prize, L.A. Times Best Books of 1997, the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Literary Award, and the South Asian Literary Association Distinguished Author Award. She is co-founder and former president of Maicha, a helpline founded in 1991 for South Asian women dealing with domestic abuse and serving working out of San Francisco. And she serves on the Houston board of Pratham. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. A nonprofit organization working to bring literacy to disadvantaged Indian children. Chitra Banerjee Devakarmuni, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you so much, Gil. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Yes. Well, we've met uh, more than a decade ago the first time, so it's been a while since we've had a chance to chat. I want to talk about Oleander Girl because it begins in a very sensual dream that a privileged young woman named Koribi, or sometimes called Cora, has on the morning of her engagement party when she realizes and wakens and that is she is not alone in the room. That's right. Korobi is the protagonist yes. of Oleander Girl. And the heroine? The heroine. Dare we call her that? Yes, I think you could call her that. And she is about to... Im- She's, her life is about to change mm-hmm. when she wakes up. Tell us a little bit about her background because it's not the traditional, I don't think anyone's anymore's background. That's right. One of my themes in Oleander Girl that I wanted to explore was the amazing rapidity with which India is changing as it hurtles through, towards the global world or into the global world. Mm-hmm. And as it's changing so fast... It clashes with the traditions of India, which are thousands of years old. And I'm very interested in this clash between modern values and traditional culture. Well, Karubi stands for the traditional culture part of India. Mm -hmm. She comes from a very old and ancient family, very respected in the city of Kolkata. And she's been brought up by her very traditional grandparents. Right. Who have a history of... uh being important, so important that there actually is a Hindu temple in their house. That's right. They're an ancient Kolkata family. There's a historic temple in their in the grounds of their mansion. Um, a road is named after her great-grandfather. So you can tell that she's that kind of family. Mm-hmm. And she's going to fall in love with a young man who also comes from a well-known and powerful family, but very new money. New money, right. And they made their money uh, in an interesting way in that they opened a, a gallery down in downtown Kolkata. And uh, it's become very famous because Indian paintings in, let's see, this would have been just at the end of the last century, mm-hmm. became very popular worldwide and were getting very uh, high prices. That's right. And so they made, you know, they 
Garubi's mother-in-law-to-be is has a real eye for art, so she's been able to catch young and rising uh, painters mm -hmm. and then show their work, and then that's how the family has become very rich and powerful. But when the book begins, things are about to change. Or things have just changed. Right. Although the family, Roger's family, is hiding that that change from the rest of the world. Well, that's one of the other themes that goes through this: is everyone has a secret. It seems I can't think of a single character in here who doesn't, in fact. And that was one of the themes I wanted to explore because it seems to me, uh, in in this book, I wanted to touch upon some mythic themes. Mm -hmm. So one of the mythic themes is the hero's journey. Right. Karubi will have to, at a certain point, undertake a journey that will propel her out of the comfortable, known world into America, into an America that's been transformed in 2002 in the wake of 9-11. Mm -hmm. And that, so that's one of the themes. Though I've turned it on its head somewhat because in the hero's journey, it is the hero who goes on the journey. It is the beloved who is the woman who is left behind. Right. And right. here, Karavi is going to be going on her journey, leaving her fiancé, Rajat, behind. So. Well, the other interesting thing, all of the women in this are really quite strong and powerful. Even the one who is, you know, living in, in under the thumb of her husband in New York in her own way. But, um, for instance, we were talking about Mrs. Bose who runs the um, the gallery. She is a very savvy businesswoman, um, dresses, you know, for success. Shall we say that? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. But in the style that's acceptable in both worlds. Right. She knows – how to comport herself. She's a very savvy businesswoman, and she's come out of a very difficult past. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's earned every bit of her success, mm -hmm. and it's made her hard. It's made her street smart. And so, I yes, I was very interested in portraying strong women in very different walks of life, mm -hmm. and some women who are not strong in the beginning, but become strong by the end of the novel, but I wanted to go back to what you were talking about, family secrets. Mm. So that, I think, is, again, another mythic theme, isn't it? It is. Um, and I wanted to touch on that, that families have their secrets for different reasons, and the power of that secret as it sits untold. And it's, it's a, a secret power. that, for many of them, is generations old. That's right. Because after she wakes up, uh, you know, she sees her mother's ghost. That's right. Who That's speaks right. to her. Well, she, she doesn't actually say anything, but she tries she to, speak, tries to, to speak to her. And then, can I have you read something? Absolutely, In fact, uh, I'd when, love when to. we have that meeting, because um, I, uh, I think that. it des describes um, a little bit about what she did uh, growing up as well. It's from there to there. Okay. Okay. So this is, as you said, it's like the night before. Yes. Um, or the or end the morning, of the night. The morning the, before. Yes, right. the morning before uh, Corby's engagement ceremony. She's just woken up with a start. As my eyes adjust to the darkness, I know at once that someone is in the room. My heart flails around. It's impossible. I always lock the door before going to sleep, and the window is barred. But there it is, in the armchair in the corner of the bedroom, a still female form, black against the darkness of the room, looking toward me. "'Mother?' I whisper, my fear replaced by a yearning that's as old and illogical as anything I can remember. I know so little about my mother, 
only that she died eighteen years ago, giving birth to me, a few months after my father, an ambitious law student, had passed away in a car accident. Perhaps she died of a broken heart. I never knew for sure, because no one would speak to me of them. My grandparents had to put aside their own broken hearts to care for me, and I'm grateful they did it well. Still, all through my years growing up, I longed for a visitation from my mother. The girls in my boarding school whispered stories about such occurrences, deceased parents appearing to save their offspring from calamity. I prayed for it in secret, and when that didn't work, tried to put myself in calamity's way, figuring either my mother or father might appear. But I only ended up with bruises, sprains, a case of the whooping cough, and finally, a broken ankle. My adventures led to detentions, confiscation of pocket money, and a somewhat exaggerated reputation as a daredevil. They also resulted in numerous tongue lashings from our harried principal, which didn't matter to me, and finally, a long-distance phone call from my grandfather, which did. Gorubi, grandfather said in that stern, grainy voice that I had adored from babyhood. I'm too old for this. Besides, why would a smart girl like you do a stupid thing like walking on the upstairs window ledge? The canny old rascal. He knew me well enough to appeal to my three major weaknesses, my vanity, my guilt, and most of all, my love for him. He was, to me, father and mother rolled into one, and the thought that I had distressed and disappointed him made me burst into tears. Thus ended my attempts at forcing my parents into making an appearance. Now, years after I had armored my heart and accepted that my mother was gone from my life, here she is. How can I be sure it is her? There are some things we know, in our breath, in our bones. It makes a certain sense that she should visit me now. Tomorrow, I am to take my very first real step into adulthood. I will be engaged to Rajuth and thus begin to journey away from this family into another one. Perhaps my mother has come to say goodbye, to give me her blessing. Is she concerned? A strange tension seems to emanate from her. Perhaps she can't go to her final rest until she's certain that I am loved. I think I know why. There is so much in that little page and a half um, that when I read it, I heard the poet in you. Thank so you. So tell me how you put this together. Did did this come to you all in a sequential way? Did you put it out in an outline? We've heard all kinds of different writers give away their techniques. Would you mind sharing what you do? I'm happy to share. Only um, on a Girl, you know, it was a challenging book for me to write because I think as I started writing it, well, it, it was like halfway through before I realized something, which is, although I hadn't thought about it consciously, my family had had a secret too, and that was related to my grandfather. And it was a secret, just like Korobi has a secret mm. that she doesn't know about. Her grandfather has kept it from her. Mm -hmm. And when she realizes 
that her grandfather has kept a huge secret from her. She's devastated because this is the grandfather she's loved so much and she feels betrayed. Right. Well, you know, as you know, I have a I had a grandfather that I loved greatly. He was the first storyteller in my life and my children's picture book is based on um, a folk tale that he used to tell me called Grandma and the Great Gourd. Well, I used to, I loved my grandfather and then when I was a teenager, I realized that he had been keeping a secret from me and that the whole family had been complicit in it, mm. that he had disinherited one of my uncles mm. and he had told the family never to speak of speak him of again. Speak of that brother again. And yeah. so, you know, I was like devastated, like this wonderful man, how could he have done that? Right? So this Was it book, someone you knew then? No. No, no. No, he was cut off from the family. I had never met him. Right. But then I learned that, you know, here I had an uncle and mm. I never met him. Yeah, yeah. And so... That caused me a great deal of distrust. So I think Oleander Girl came to me slowly, and it was a difficult book to write. It was a challenging book because I was struggling with a lot of these issues and how could they be portrayed. And it's a book of fiction, but you can see how I, I was concerned about the same things, right? I was Well, I was the, the timing, of course, is different in that it's, it's just after, in the months after, we'll say about six months after 2011. And 9-11 has some very direct consequences on the families in Absolutely. this book. Absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to show in this novel is that 9-11 was such a huge occurrence. Some of the obvious ways were clear to us as Americans, but the long-reaching effects mm -hmm. were subtle, and you, you felt those repercussions all the way across the world because uh, Rajat's family owns a very wonderful, expensive gallery, art gallery in New York, which they've just opened. Mm -hmm. They've spent huge amounts of money because Indian art is at its peak. And then one of the things that is surprising, or maybe not so, after 9-11, no one wants to buy Indian art anymore. And now they're in financial distress. Well, even more than that, they go in and uh, trash the gallery. Yes, yes. What, what you There's call a them? huge hate crime. Vandalize the they gallery. They vandalize right? the gallery um, because, you know, for some people after 9-11, brown-skinned people are suspect. Mm -hmm. Brown-skinned people with are dangerous. With different last names. With different last names. They're dangerous. They can't be trusted. Did and you see that in Houston as well? You know, right after 9-11, that was the time when I was living in California, oh, actually. Wow. Yes, I had come back. And yes, I mean, we felt it. I would be at the grocery and people would say things to me like, because you go back in, home. Because in your traditional because dress? Because I was wearing my traditional dress and people couldn't distinguish mm -hmm. between, you know, Indian dress and Middle Eastern dress. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, even if I had been Middle Eastern, what difference would it have made? I wouldn't have had anything to do with 9-11 right, anyway. Right. right? So so there was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of fear and hatred going across the country. And I wanted to explore that because when Korubi comes to America, she feels the aftermath of 9-11. Well, there's, it's, there's some interesting parallels. Now, when they go out, usually in the evening, and they have their chauffeur-driven Mercedes that they ride around in or their uh, even older uh, Rolls-Royce that they ride around in. They end up in um, 
parts of town where they have to be very careful. They can't park in the wrong place. They have to make sure that the chauffeur is there to guard the car and really protect them. When uh, Rajit uh, drives himself, he uh, gets them in some kind of ticklish situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when she comes to New York, even more so, she's told by everyone, oh, no, you can't go out at night. You're a woman alone, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not because of 9-11. It's just because that's the way the world is, where they are. Mm -hmm. And they're in different neighborhoods. And um, I wondered if you were, were you trying to draw a parallel between the two large cities or? Definitely. And the other way in which there's a parallel is that 2002 is also a year of, you know, great violence in India. Yes. The huge Godhra riots, the mm -hmm. Hindu-Muslim riots happen. And that happens also in the western part of India. But again, you feel the repercussions all the way across the country in Rajot's warehouse where yes. Hindus and Muslims have been working side by side. But, Listening to the Bollywood songs and singing along. Right. and But now they no longer trust each other. They hear about the riots and, you know, some kind of atavistic hatred comes up in their hearts. So I think in this novel I wanted to ex explore uh, how do we live with difference? It could be religious difference. It could be economic difference. It could be class difference. It could be gender difference. Mm -hmm. How do we live in a world that's full of difference? And because of the global world, now we are pressed up against these distances, differences. We can't stay in our own little, you know, our own little coterie, as it were. Right. Well, it's interesting that you've put uh, a Muslim, Asif, yes. as the chauffeur who works for the uh, the Bose family. And can you read on page 10 about sure. uh, a little bit about when we get to know him a little bit and, and his secret? Yes. And I wanted to say something, which is that Asif was a character that really surprised me. Um, you know, I became very fond of him. Yeah. I had originally thought of him as a minor character, but very soon he really worked his He's way He's got a real the... personality, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Asif Ali maneuvers the gleaming Mercedes down the labyrinthine lanes of old Kolkata with consummate skill. But his passengers, occupied as they are with the day's engagement festivities, do not notice how smoothly he avoids potholes, cows, and beggars, how skillfully he sails through aging yellow lights to get the Bose family to their destination on time. This disappoints Asif only a little. In his six years of chauffeuring the rich and callous, he has realized that to them, servants are invisible. Until they make a mistake, that is. Let Asif jerk to a halt because a brainless pedestrian has suddenly stepped in front of his car, and he would hear plenty from Mem Saab right away. Not that Asif is complaining. The bosses are a definite improvement from his previous employers. For one, they aren't stingy. It is an unceasing wonder to Asif how ingeniously tight-fisted the rich can be towards servants. He gets overtime if Bara Saab comes back from a business trip at night, or if Mem Saab stays, stays late at a party, both of which happen with heartening regularity. They might grumble a bit, but they never cut his pay when he asks for time off on Muslim holy days, and they tip handsomely when they're pleased about something. Especially Rajat Saab, though since he acquired his BMW, Asif hasn't seen much of him. 
Rajatsav gave him five hundred rupees the night he proposed to Korobi madam. She said, yes, Asif, how about that? Even in the car's subdued interior light, Rajat's eyes had a naked shine to them. It made Asif feel ancient, though he is at most five or six years older than Rajat. Congratulations, Sam. I'm wishing you two will be very happy together. He meant it to. He liked Rajat Sam, who was always kind and considerate, even in his wild days before meeting Korubi Madam, when he used to go clubbing every night with his crazy friends and that Sonia woman who was the craziest of them all. But Asif didn't blame him. If Asif had that kind of money, he would be doing a few crazy things too, instead of spending his off evenings playing teen patti with the other drivers in the building, watching them get drunk on cheap beer. But Asif's favorite person in the family is Pia Missy, whom he drives to and from school each day, and who reminds him, though it's illogical of him to think this way, and perhaps presumptuous, of his younger sister. Although no one will ever know, Pia is the reason he refused when, last year, Sheikh Rahman's men tried to lure him away with the offer of a higher salary and the opportunity to drive a Rolls Royce. For a moment he had weakened. More than the money, it was the car. And more than the car, it was the Sheikh's reputation. Sheikh Rahman is a legend in the Muslim community. He's known for hiring young Muslims of promise and taking an active interest in their welfare. He's generous with bonuses and overtime pay. He houses them in staff quarters that are downright luxurious. They eat for free, delicious halal meals prepared in a communal kitchen in the back of the sheikh's own mansion. Last year, when some of them told him that they wanted to visit Mecca, he paid all their expenses and gave them extra vacation time. It is said no servant has ever quit his service though several, because the sheikh is a stickler, have been fired. But then, Asif thought of the way Pia Messi would look if she found out he was leaving, and she said, and he said no. Pia Messi has a secret name for him, which she only uses when no one else is within earshot. A.A. It's a name with style. A.A., do you want some Wrigley's Double Mint? Can you go faster, A.A.? Tell me again who you have at home in your village, A.A. Turn up the volume, A.A., more. She likes American music, ear-splittingly raucous. It mystifies him, but he has decided it is his favorite, too. When they are alone in the car, Pia Missy holds up an imaginary mic as though she were a rock star and shakes her shoulders as she sings. Asif hums under his breath, accompanying her. Right. So his secret, of course, is that he really likes the do- the young the daughter, who's uh, how much? What was her age? She's about twelve. Okay. And, and you uh, you mo- didn't model her on any one twelve year old you knew, did you? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Tell me where. Uh, as you said, you got you you grew to like him, and he does. Um, there's some amazing things that happen because of him, because of decisions that he makes, because of opportunities that he takes, uh, because of loyalties that he has. 
That's right. And I think in Asif's character, I really wanted to explore some of the conflicts that someone in his position would have. He's an outsider. Mm -hmm. He's a Muslim in a Hindu household. Mm -hmm. He's a chauffeur in a rich family. You know, he is always the outsider. And when push comes to shove and the Hindu-Muslim rights are at their height, his employers, whom he's been with for years, begin to distrust him. And how painful would that be? Mm -hmm. And he is dearly fond of Pia, who reminds him of his sister, but he can never express that. Right. Because that would, that would be crossing Untoward. a line right. for a chauffeur. Right. So we've got an upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey kind of yes. twist to yes. this. Yes. yes, and I did want to explore you know, the class differences and the relationships between classes in Indian society. Mm -hmm. Again, one of those clashes between the old and the new, because um, Asif is a contrast to Korobi's family's chauffeur, Bahadur, right. who has always been with them. He's been with them since he was a boy, a young man, and he just loves that family. He's, he That's become his family. Mm -hmm. Bahadur can't think of anyone else as his family. His employers are his family. He's totally accepted that that's his position. Asif is, you know, he's conflicted about his position. Right. He's a chauffeur, but he's very careful not to be obsequious. Mm -hmm. You know, he has his dignity, and sometimes he gets angry uh, the way his employers treat him. So he's much more of the new India. At the start of the book, he looks down on Bahadur, in fact. That's right. But then they kind of strike up a, a friendship. And, uh, yes, and that surprised food. me yeah, too. <laughs> yes, yes. But I was very pleased because, you know, that's also like generational, uh -huh. right? Asif is this young man, Bahadur is this old man. And I was very pleased when they began to develop this friendship. Mm -hmm. Well, there, he, he doesn't have a friendship at all with uh, Sonia, who he refers to as that Sonia woman, uh, who is the epitome of the flashy young. Uh, wear a silver dress, drive a silver Porsche, you know, be very Western in your style and taste, young woman. Yes. Uh, who uh, he knows has spent the night with uh, Rajid in a hotel, which, of course, he assumes what they did. And um, he does not think well of her for that, although he has no problem with Rajid's doing that. That's right. There's a lot of, um, you know... Conflicting standards and double standards, but Sonia, as I was, as I was writing her, I realized, or I realized, and then I was writing her, is that a lot of new young India is like that. They've mm -hmm. moved away from the old. Mm -hmm. uh, well, values. they've not moved away; they've thrown it away. They've they've decided they want some freedoms. And I hope that I've managed to, although Asif is very vehement in her dislike of Sonia, I hope I've managed to make her, you know, a complex character because she wants, you know, she wants autonomy over her life. Mm -hmm. She wants to live life on her terms. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things is because you, you, you were we were talking as we opened up about how, um, how Kara is really almost like what we referred to as a convent girl. You know, someone, although it was not a religious school, she was raised away from boys in mm -hmm. a very secluded, 
uh, low-key, this is what you'll learn type of environment. This is, you know, what's expected of, of a young woman in society from, I don't know, 50 years earlier and will continue it on today. And that appeals. There's that kind of Pygmalion, I can turn her into whatever, you know, I want to kind of thing with her fiancé, don't you think? Yes, Rajat is extremely attracted to uh, Karavi's lifestyle and that's, you know, that's, again, I hope, well, okay. one of the complexities. Two parts of her lifestyle. The in, the long history of her family, mm-hmm. which is even more valued by his parents. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she is a woman who is still naive. That's right. And he is the first man in her life. Right. And that's special. And, right. you know, he doesn't get that anywhere else. All the other women he knows, they've... You know, they've been around. Right. And so there's a fairy tale quality to Korobi's life that he is very attracted to. And he he does love her as herself, but I think he also loves her because of how different she is from him. This is Gil Manser on KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media where tonight's guest is the international award-winning novelist and poet Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, sharing her newest book, Oleander Girl. In the next half hour, Chitra will offer more about how she created her characters to represent the old India and the new India, right here on KRCB-FM. What we were talking about is the the different expectations, the changing, um, even though this is 10 years ago now, is India still going through a major transition of past and present and future? Yes, I think so. The change that I'm showing in Oleander Girl in 2002 is still very much a part of India's transformation. And I think that's because uh, the old cultural roots go way, way deep. So, you know, people are not going to let go of them as Mm -hmm. quickly. Some changes occur. Some things are still held on to. In a few places, people are realizing that what they wanted to throw away in terms of old culture is valuable. People are coming back to it. Mm -hmm. But also, India is a very young country. It has a very large, young population. And they want to look ahead. They want to take their place in the world. And I think this conflict is going to go on for a while. It's not going to be resolved very quickly. Right. Well, now, tell me a little bit, because I don't remember. Kolkata is... uh is that part of the new age uh, high tech world of that we think of Mumbai? Mumbai, is- Mumbai and Delhi and Bangalore especially, I think they have advanced more rapidly mm-hmm. into that global world, the IT world. Right. Kolkata is a more traditional city. It is making its inroads and sometimes the young in Kolkata get impatient because Kolkata you know, still moves in its old stately way. And it has a lot of history. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of Anglo-Indian history. It has a lot of British history. But it goes way back thousands of years. Right. And Bengalis are very proud of that old culture. They're proud of their literature, like with Tagore. So, you know, they're not, they don't want to let go of those things. Mm -hmm. So there's a big tussle in Kolkata. Tussle, that's a good word. (laughs) When did you come to the United States? What year was that? 
Oh, ancient history. I came in 1978. 78. So this is uh, somewhat later than that. What did you find? Because you didn't come to New York first. No, I didn't. I came to Ohio. Yes, which is certainly decidedly different. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Especially, you know, in that pre-internet age, um, I didn't know that much about America except what I'd seen in movies. Did you expect Indians and things like that in Ohio? I'm not 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 East Indians, no. but Native Americans. No, actually, the movies I'd seen had been all based in. New York or Los Angeles, right. so I'd expected something like that, and then I ended up in in a kind of a small city, university town, in university yeah. town with miles and miles of cornfields all around. I was a little taken aback. Right, but then you came to Berkeley, and you were in a big cosmopolitan. Yes, yes, and I think I really loved California uh, from day one, and interestingly. And going back to the title of this book, Oleander Girl, one of the first things I loved about California, as soon as I got down at the airport and took the bus to Berkeley, were all the oleanders lining the road. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this feels like home. Mm. And Corby, many, many years later, is going to have that same experience. She's going to get down at the airport. She's going to drive the freeways of California. She's going to see the oleanders. Mm -hmm. And she's going to think, oh, my goodness, these are the oleanders my mother named me after. Right. And she's sure there's a connection there. But she's also aware that oleander is poisonous, and she's got some thoughts about that as well. Yeah. That's one of her questions from when she's you know, a young girl. She asks her grandmother, why would my mother want to name me after a flower that's, yes, it's beautiful, but it's also dangerous. It's poisonous. And her grandmother says, I don't know. She just told me that that's what she wanted to name you. And because she died in childbirth, I respected that and I named you Karubi. But you, by the end of the novel, she will find out. You do know that the reason it's in the middle of the freeway or was put in the middle of the freeway is because it's poisonous, it's able to withstand all the horrible you know, smog and stuff that comes off the cars and not be killed. Yes, it's a very hardy plant, right? right? It's a very hardy and plant. And beautiful during the when it's blooming. Yes. Yeah. So we have uh we got a lot of people we've met here. Um let's what I'd like to have you do is read another little bit. This is an interesting part. Um it's when um the grandmother, Sorogini, has um, been fighting with her granddaughter. Uh, because a secret has just come out. It's on page 53. And um, I'm not going to give away the secret because I think that's something that the reader should discover, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yes. I agree. So, But this part does not reveal that, as I recall. And uh, But it does talk about the difficulties. And this must be happening in India just as often as it is here, is so many grandparents are raising their grandchildren for a variety of reasons, you know, mm -hmm. travel or uh, tragedy or, you know, just life experiences has made it be so. Uh, I know my, my uh, wife, you know, teaches junior high and she has – Oh, I don't know, probably 10% of the people who were there are being raised by grandparents. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to show that too because that's not the traditional family that you think of. Mm -hmm. So here's that anomaly in a very traditional, 
home in an old home, suddenly the traditional structure has fallen apart and another one has to take its place. Right, because she's really an orphan. Yes. 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 In in the traditional fairy tale sense, being yes. raised by the grandparents. Yeah. Being raised by the grandparents yeah. in an old mansion. Yes. And as Roger says, with an ogre of a grandfather. And ghosts. <laughs> and ghosts. Yeah, secret yes. places to go. All right. Okay. Okay. Sharujini lies in her marriage bed, vast as a desert, with a damp cloth over her throbbing forehead. It is perhaps two in the morning, perhaps three. She isn't sure. The bedside clock that Bimal used to wind up every night before he slept has stopped working. And, of course, Bimal has just passed away, her husband. Right. And the grandfather. The grandfather, so of so dearly loved, right. Her mind will not stop replaying the quarrel, the look in Korubi's eyes when disbelief was replaced by the shock of betrayal. The girl had made a choking sound and stumbled from the room, not looking back, though Sharujini had begged her to stop. She had heard the front door slam. Terrified at what she might do, Sharujini had sent Cook after her and had paced the bedroom until the woman returned to report that Korubi baby was sitting on the temple steps. She wouldn't answer Cook, not even to tell her to go away. It was as though she didn't see her. Swarms of mosquitoes were attacking her, but she didn't seem to care. Finally, Cook lit a couple of mosquito coils, wrapped her in a shawl, shook awake a snoring Bahadur and told him to keep an eye on her, and came back to ask Sharujini what terrible thing had happened. Sharujini didn't want to lie to Cook, who had been with her for so many years, so she closed her eyes and shook her head until Cook went away. Now she presses the wet cloth, hot and salty with tears, and no longer comforting against her throbbing eyes and thinks, Bimal was right. By breaking her word to him, she has lost her granddaughter. The bed is filled with memories of Bimal, of Anu, but it's the memory of Korubi that comes to Shorujini now. Born prematurely, she had been kept in the hospital incubator for weeks. How tiny she was, how frighteningly fragile when Sharujini finally brought her home, her skin like thin porcelain with the blue veins showing through it. Terrified that she would die, Sharujini had sent Bimal off to the guest bedroom and kept the baby in this bed, shored up by pillows. She checked on her breathing every hour, fed her milk from a dropper, held on to her as though she were afraid that any moment she'd slip away. With her eyes closed and hand cupped, she can even now feel that silky newborn skin. It comforts her, pulling her finally into sleep and thence into a dream. Ah. The motherly connection that's happened with the grandmother. And, and it's a... It's kind of a fraught connection because all her life, the grandmother has been wanting to tell Korubi this family secret. Well, it's more than one secret. Yes. Yes. But her husband has made her promise never to, and he's threatened her. He's made her fearful that if she tells the secret, she will lose the granddaughter. Mm -hmm. And there is danger of that. Yes. And... Uh, 
as we we've talked about, you know, she goes to uh, to the United States looking for something for on her quest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's potential she may not come back, like someone I know who <laughs> gets out to to Berkeley and says, "Oh, this is gorgeous, and look, there's oleanders on the on the roadway here." That's right. I think that is. You know, that is the story of many immigrants. When they come to America, they think they're going back, and then they fall in love with America, and they live here. And so that is a huge question for Karabi. Is she going to return Mm -hmm. to India? Mm -hmm. Is she going to return to her Mm fiancé? Because America is, even in 2002, when it's kind of dangerous, it's still very alluring. Right. Well... Yeah, the the new, the exciting, the make your own life, mm-hmm. and she's a very um, even though she's been raised, as, shall we say, a sheltered environment. She's a very strong-willed individual. Yeah, I think I wanted to show that she's an again. She is a mix of anomalies. She is at once sheltered. She's strong-willed, and yet she's really very innocent of the world. She's mm-hmm. never been mm-hmm. out there, and you know she is. Courageous in some ways, but then she truly misses her family support when she's in America. She feels and lonely. her boyfriend's support. She she misses Roger, right. and yet she's you know once they move away from each other, Roger's left in India. She's in America. It's as though they're in different worlds. They can they can't really communicate their immediate reality to the other person. There's a wonderful thing that happens. It's like. The old style novels where people had to write letters to each other and then wait, you know, these few days or weeks or months even to hear back what the other one thought. And by that time, other things have changed. In this case, when she arrives in the United States and she's been promised a cell phone that can call back to India, uh, the man who was going to get her the phone tells her that that because of, you know, the uh, the events that have followed and the, the laws that are in place after 9-11 – is that uh, it's hard for someone from another country to get a cell phone, which is not true, but it means that there's all these opportunities for people to have miscommunication, you know, in short, brief interviews. They all, always call it the wrong time. Yes. You know, there's something going on when, you know, when the phone connection finally does happen. Aside from the time difference, you know, it's in the middle of the night for one of them. Yes. Um, it's always the middle of the night. It's always the middle of the night. That's of right. And there's something major, you know, I mean, like the big, we were talking about the big uproar at the factory is one of the times that uh, Rajiv gets the phone call. And he can't spend, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I can't. Uh, the, the, you yes, know, people are take, killing each other right. in his factory right. at that time. He so, can't talk to his no. girlfriend. So you did that intentionally, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. And And one of the things that I wanted to point to, which I think, you know, I really think this happens, that... When you are living in the same place, in the same time zone, Mm -hmm. in the same world, you just connect in a different way. Mm -hmm. But when you've moved away to where your reality is so different, it is hard to communicate that. Your priorities have changed because you're in a different world. The other person's priorities are different because he's in that old world. And he has a hard time understanding what you're going through, and you have a hard time understanding what he's going through. And I wanted to show that, that kind of miscommunication that really complicates matters between Karubi and Rajut. 
Well, you just told me as we were coming in that your youngest has just started college. Is that right? That's right. So this is going to happen to you when they come home for, you know, the breaks and their their experiences of you don't know what's happened. You know, they've met yes. new people, gone different places, and they're yes. going to tell you part of it but not all of it. Exactly. Once you don't live together, um, the other person becomes a mystery. Right. And that's hard for Parents, I was just going to say mothers, but that's not it's true for us dads, too. I think it is. Yeah. I think yeah. it is. You think you know this young person. You've brought them up since birth. Right. Of course you know them. Right. But then you realize they're their own being. They are. Full there. of mystery. They definitely are that. <laughs> and you want them to be that, yes, right? You, you know, push them you out do. of the nest, go fly. You but, do. You, do. you know, call would be good, too. A mi- it's mixed. <laughs> it's mixed. I have one more thing I want you to read, and this is uh, – we talked briefly about Mrs. Bose and her gallery, page 140. And I think it's a wonderful insight into being a hostess, and I will put that in the – with a capital H, okay? <laughs> yes, because that is very important for Mrs. Bose. I think it's important for many, many people, you know, male and female. Yes, yes. And this evening is particularly important for her because a very important guest is coming to their Potential home. investor. Yes. 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 Someone very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Politically connected as well. Yes. Yes. Evening has descended upon Kolkata. Mrs. Bose turns on the recessed lights and gives the elegantly arranged dining table a considering look. But instead of the satisfaction she usually feels, she has nagged by doubt. She has walked a razor's edge, trying to create the right mix of taste and wealth. Enough, but not too much. Mr. and Mrs. Bhattacharya are coming to dinner, an event signaling a new intimacy between the families that Mrs. Bose desires, yet shrinks from. It is a crucial night. She hopes that by the end of the evening, Bhattacharya will sign the partnership papers the Boses have drawn up based on previous discussions. This is why the right impression is so important. If Bhattacharya thinks their finances are precarious, and they are more each day, he might shy away. If he thinks they're too well off to be appropriately appreciative of his contribution, because that's what Mrs. Bhatta, Mr. Bhattacharya likes, to be appreciated and preferably revered. Then, too, he might decline. With that in mind, she has chosen her second-best Wedgwood set rather than the spode. The goblets are glass, not crystal. The tableware merely stainless steel. She hopes she has not made a mistake. The menu is Italian, accompanied by French wine. Mr. Bhattacharya, for all his professions of Hindu purity, has a great fondness for French wines. In seclusion, of course. (laughs) He also has a very interesting, uh, I don't know if it's a prurian interest in the 12-year-old daughter. And this distresses the mother. That's right. That's right. He's a bit too friendly. A bit too handsy. Yes. Yes. But she has a secret talent that at 12 years is just starting to blossom and that uh, he sees on the wall. So tell us about that and where did this come from? Well, yes, you're right. Rajat's young sister, Pia, is she is the photographer in Oleander Girl. 
and she takes a photograph, the perfect photograph. In fact, you know, her photographs will begin and end the tale. Mm -hmm. She takes a perfect photograph of Rajat's engagement party, which is which takes place out in the old temple, in the ancient mansion. And uh, she is able to just place people right. She's able to create a composition. She's an artist. Yeah, she doesn't just take a candid shot. She takes time, says, you move over here. Can you put your arm here? Can you turn your hat this way, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. The veil needs to go like that. And be sure, I'll see if you get in there too, because you're part of this. That's right. Yes, I thought, you know, I really liked that when she lets the servants all come into the picture because how can the family be complete without the servants? Right. I wanted to go back because I'd forgotten to mention this when you were reading the part where the grandmother is, you know, in bed thinking over things uh, and talks about Cook because Cook has no name. Right. Cook is Cook. Cook is Cook. <laughs> but Cook is very important. That's right. In many ways. She's the nurse. She's yes. the uh, telegrapher. She's the collector of information. She's the bring the right thing at the right time. You know, very aware of the nuances of what's going on around her. And she really cares for the family. She cares for Korubi, whom she's seen ever since birth. Right. She cares for her mistress, Sharjini. She's afraid that Sharjini is falling apart after her husband's uh, death. Mm -hmm. So she's really concerned about the family because, you know, that's her family. That's her what family what too. is happening to, I will say, I, I don't know, do we call them servants? Is that a good phrase? That, that is what they're called, yes, yeah. servants. Um, retainers. Retainers yeah. today in India when they reach a certain age and are not as spry as they used to be or may need more care. Well, you know, that too is changing because I remember in my grandparents' generation and even in my parents' generation – when you had a family retainer and they'd given you their lives, mm -hmm. you made sure they had a good retirement, they would go back to their families at the end, and you made sure they had enough mm -hmm. to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. But I think now uh, things are changing. That kind of lifelong employment is not there. Um, servants move around. They're looking for better employment all the time. Right. A lot of them don't want to be servants anymore. Yeah. Or a lot of them will work part-time in many households and thus get you know, more money that mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer that lifelong kind of relationship. And I have a feeling, just talking to people in India, it's getting very hard to get household help. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon um, it might just not be possible anymore. It might become so expensive that most people can't have household help anymore. So does India have a system, a retirement system similar to it all? I know it's not similar, but like a social security system for people who can? No, no. not at all. No, no. So um, the retainers are really dependent on their employers mm -hmm. for what they can mm -hmm. get. And and that is why even for Sharujini, she finds out after her husband Bimal right. has died, all of a sudden there's no money. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things she discovers. That's one of the secrets he's been keeping from her is that their finances are in bad shape. Yeah, and now, Cook has to go around the house and find things they may be able to sell. That's right. They're looking now through their house right, right. for things they can sell off. And they don't get the money for even the, the what I, several centuries worth of jewelry that they've, you know, the dowry jewelry that's been handed down does yeah. not bring as much as they want. No. 
that's and that's the truth, isn't it? When you buy things, they cost a lot more when you right. try to sell them off. I'd like you to share a little bit. I know you weren't ta- planning on doing this, but you brought in your book called Grandma and the Great Gourd, which you said was based on a story you had been told by your grandfather. That's right. So tell us about this and how this developed. And I want to know all the little bits and pieces of of you didn't just wake up one night and say, well, I'm going to publish this because this is not how the world works. So what was the process? Well, I've been interested in folktale, fairy tale, and myth for a long time. I mean, my first novel, Mistress mm-hmm. of Spices, comes largely out of Indian folk tales about spices, folk right. beliefs about spices. So, you know, I've been, I think that's such rich material. I've been mining that material for many of my books. Mm-hmm. A Queen of Dreams is about a dream interpreter. Mm-hmm. That also comes out of our folk tradition. So, and then I thought to myself, I really want to make this wonderful, rich folk tradition available for children in the English speaking world. And so I retold this story, Grandma and the Great Gourd, which is a Bengali folk tale. Mm -hmm. And I tried to remember my grandfather's voice. He had a wonderful storytelling voice. And I've used words out of my language, especially sound words. Now I've used onomatopoeia Mm -hmm. in this book. And I think everyone will have fun with this because this is also this is also a hero's journey. This is the tale of a grandmother whose daughter is, lives on the other side of the forest mm-hmm. and misses her and invites her to come. And the grandmother is a little afraid of going through the forest, which has many wild beasts. But then she says, what's life without a little adventure? And she sets off on her journey. Mm-hmm. She's going to meet some very hungry animals and she's going to have to try and outwit her way right. through the forest and then back again. And that's the tale of Grandma and the Great Gourd. And who's printing this? Who's who's your publisher? This is Roaring Brook and, and, and Macmillan. And Macmillan, right. yes. And did you uh, come to them with a this? The reason I ask this is we have so many listeners who are writers or want to be writers or learn how uh-huh. the process is today, not you know as it was ten years ago because right. it's quite decidedly. It's changing different. so much. So how did you market or sell or shop this book? Well, I was. Fortunate because my earlier children's book, which is a young adult novel called The Conch Bearer, mm-hmm. is also with Roaring Brook. So ah. I knew uh, I knew the editor. And so when I had this idea for a children's picture book, uh, my agent approached him and she said, what do you think? And he liked the idea. Mm-hmm. And he went ahead and found the, the illustrator. And I'm, I'm just delighted by her colorful, collage-like Art for this. This is book. Susie Pilgrim Waters. Yes, right. and she is it known is definitely for, colorful, and it has a it has a folk, folk feel, feel, isn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. She's known for uh, doing murals for the New York Public Libraries. Ah, yes, very nice. It's a co- it's a good combination, and I it says Advanced Readers Edition here. So is, when is this coming? Out? It's come out. Oh, I, it I have the advanced. But you it's just have one in out. your in your bag. That's one of the advanced. Well, good. So yeah. it is called. Great, I mean, Grandma and the Great Gourd, and it's Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni. And what age group would you say this is for? I would say, now, I'm a great believer of reading to Mm -hmm. little children. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, from three years old, maybe even younger, all the way to seven and eight, some children will be read to. Some Mm -hmm. of them will be able to read it themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And you just yeah. have to sound like uh, your grandpa when they read it. Huh? <laughs> I tried this out in our local elementary school. And the kids, I have to say, they just loved it. Yeah. And they were like making the sounds along with me. You know, like the elephants go top, 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 and they were making. They just, they just delighted in the sounds. Cool, very which nice. is what I was hoping yeah, for. Yeah, it's, it's a. When I read through it uh, th- today, it was that's how it it flows beautifully. It's a, it's very fairy tale in its style, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, there's a traditional uh, feel to it, which is, I think, what you wanted to do. Absolutely. So I'm so pleased to hear that now, you got it. You teach uh, creative writing. I do. So what do you tell your your classes? What's your, I mean, other than put your seat in the chair? <laughs> well, I mean, putting your seat in the chair is a big part of writing. One of the things I tell my students at the University of Houston is if you want to be, seriously, if you want to be a writer, mm-hmm. and they do, you know, they, they're they doing their MFAs and PhDs. Right. You have to be regular. You have to really work at it. You have to read widely and you have to revise intelligently. I think those are the three big things of writing. Write regularly, read like a writer, mm-hmm. and revise intelligently. Tell me what you mean by read like a writer. So when you get a book, you know, a lot of times we're just reading for the plot. We're reading for the story. We want to find out what happens Or next. reading whether there's good questions for the uh, interview. Right. <laughs> That's right. But reading like a writer is when you go back to the book with a pen or a pencil and you're writing things down, you're marking things up. Oh, look at how this character is revealed. Oh, look at the dialogue over here. Um, look how the story skips certain things and comes back to it. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for narrative devices. We're looking for how it, the book changes as Oleander Girl does from first person to third person. Why do you think the writer did that? You're asking a lot of questions and you're marking down a lot of things. And you are stealing, shamelessly stealing techniques from other writers. Well, right. It's how we learn from the, you know, from others. Absolutely. And then make it have our own voice. Yes. Right. Yes. Because yours is distinctive. Yours is quite distinctive voice. Thank you. I, I, it's been delightful talking and chatting with you. Likewise. Thank and, you so much. And uh, do you have any uh, advice for our listeners other than what would be good to read in addition to Oleander Girl that you've done? Well, first Oleander Girl, then the rest of my books. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I think one of the most exciting things in America is we have such a wealth of multicultural voices. Mm-hmm. So I would really recommend that to our listeners here, uh, writers who taught me so much, writers like Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. Sandra Cisneros, Christina Garcia, Anita Desai, you know, they are just coming out of so many different traditions. Our own Maxine and they're all women, Kingston. by the way. Yes. I, uh, I do like right. the women writers. I find a lot in common with the women writers. But, you know, I, I love... Many of the men writers, Amitabh Kosh, Rohinton Mystery, right? You know, mm-hmm. just just wonderful. Tim O'Brien, yes. I think, you know, the things they carried, that's just a fine piece of writing. And it has a definite voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would say go for these powerful voices, very unique, very original, very American. That's what America is. Internationally American. Yes. Yeah. Constantly changing. Yes. Well, thank you again. Chitra. 
Banerjee Devakaruni. Thank you. We want to thank you for sharing an hour with us on KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers, where tonight's guest was the international award-winning novelist and poet Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, sharing from her latest book, Oleander Girl. Our studio engineer is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune in to our next word-by-word broadcast at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, May 1st. Remember that whenever April showers come your way, they bring the flowers that bloom in May. <laughs>